Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi there, this is Joan Van Ark, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson, author, guest Joseph Wallenstein. Joe has worked behind the scenes in many production capacities on such films as The Godfather, The Paper Chase, Paper Lion, and American Hot Wax. He has also produced and directed such popular TV series as Hotel, Seventh Heaven, and Knott's Landing. Plus, he oversees and administers all aspects of filming by the more than 700 students who make films every year at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. Joe's latest book, Flynn and Miranda, You're Right to Remain Silent, is a historical novel that not only tells the backstory of the historic U.S. Supreme Court ruling U.S., versus Miranda from June 1966, but puts a human face on the people involved, and particularly John Flynn. John Flynn, the real-life defense attorney from Phoenix, Arizona, who argued the Miranda case before the U.S. Supreme Court at great personal cost. Joe's book also includes the original petition to the U.S. Supreme Court that Flynn filed in July 1965, plus a transcript of a detailed interview that John Flynn gave to Joe Wallenstein in September 1979, just a few months before Flynn died. June 13, 2021 marks the 55th anniversary of the Miranda decision. Flynn and Miranda, Flynn and Miranda, your right to remain silent. Available Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. They say a good lawyer, Joe, they say a good lawyer never asks a question that he or she doesn't already know the answer to when, they're, when they ask that question in court. To some extent, that principle played out during the actual Supreme Court argument, Joe, because Flynn learned something about Chief Justice Warren that right. proved to be very helpful in his presentation, didn't it? Well, I, you know, if you look at the transcript, Flynn always tried to downplay, oh, I didn't do anything, it was all the case. Meanwhile, he was the guy on the spot who made decisions because the the never-ending argument was, should they argue Sixth Amendment right to counsel or Fifth Amendment uh, against self-incrimination? Uh, and uh, he jumped to the Fifth and turned out to be right, because Warren, uh, Earl Warren, was sympathetic to that approach. So even though Flynn always tried to downplay it, I take it as the key moment in our history. And why did Flynn do that? When they came for Ernesto Miranda, the cops came to his door and said, Ernie, we want, you to, we want to ask you some questions. Would you come with us? And Miranda said to Flynn uh, afterwards, standing there in the doorway, I didn't know if I had the right to tell these guys to go to hell. And Flynn's position was at that moment, the only person who could tell him what his rights were was the officer who came to arrest him. Yeah. So it's just been a very interesting intricate okay i mean this stuff i mean how did they even get to miranda <laughs> to buy the book to find out you got you got to buy the book flynn and miranda flynn and miranda available amazon.com wherever books are sold online i'm going to ask this question very carefully and you'll know what i mean in just a second there's a chapter near the end of the book 
called Demon Expunged that provides a really interesting twist that may shed light into Flynn's motivation for taking on the case without giving it away. Joe, was this something you learned from your research or was this an example of maybe creative license because after all, this is a work of fiction you're telling? If you look carefully through that transcript, you will see that he mentions it. Okay. He doesn't say, you know, I carried this burden like a heavy boulder. My heart. He, like I say, he was very sort of not aggrandizing, which was remarkable given all the things he did. But no, I did not make that up. Okay, well... In fact, if I ever get to make the movie, I'm thinking of starting with that, giving away that surprise, setting up the premise of uh, how these things happened. Guys confessed all the time to things they didn't do. Yeah. In fact, in those days... The confession was the primary tool of police work. And every lawyer worth his salt would come into court and say, sure, my client confessed. They beat him to within an inch of his life. He'd say anything and blind the jury to all the other facts in the case. Guilty guys went free. Innocent guys got convicted. It was a mess. So in the book, yes, you're right. In the book, it's sort of a payoff moment. I'm not sure I would do that in the movie. <laughs> but it does just... Looking at it as a story, putting a story together, it's a nice little aha moment near the end. Did as a reader I'm make it? <laughs> Say again? If you like it, I'm keeping it. <laughs> <laughs> Flynn and Miranda, You're Right to Remain Silent by Joseph Wallenstein. Available right now, Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. This is a question I like to ask actors who play real people, but I think it applies to writing historical fiction. As a storyteller, Joe, is it easier to adapt a story that is based on real events? Is it harder? Or are the challenges posed the same, whether it's based on a real story or a pure work of fiction? Boy, that's a, an involved question. <laughs> I had to say that. No, no, it's a great question, Ed. It's a great question, but foolishly, I do a lot of stuff foolishly, a lot of stuff. Uh, I actually got my hands on a short story by Jorge Luis Borges called Death and the Compass, mm -hmm. and I got the rights to it, and I decided I would make a, a, a modern movie of it, and the trap I fell into was staying too close to the truth mm -hmm. and not expanding the drama to a more fulfilling motion picture. So I think the answer, that's one answer. The other answer is you go where the day takes you, you know, yeah. meaning that in my experience, and there are many other fine writers who know a lot more about this than I do, I've never sat down to write a character or characters that did what I thought they were going to do. Mm -hmm. At some point, the characters seem to take on a life of their own and go. I end up following them, not leading them. Yeah. And uh, I think when I was writing this, that's what happened. I put myself in John Flynn's frame of mind. He was driven, determined, fearless, really good at what he did. Flawed, oh yeah, flawed. But I followed, uh, I followed him. I was very impressed with him. I think that's one of the things you could tell about me in the writing. I was impressed. And as far as Miranda, even my my empathy for Miranda, I see it through Flynn's eyes. Mm -hmm. Flynn said when, when Miranda was killed and the papers were very cruel and they would show pictures of 
Miranda on the gallows, and the, the caption would read, Sorry, Ernie, no more appeals. Flynn said to Carol Cooley, He certainly wasn't an upstanding citizen, but he didn't deserve to die like that. Yeah. He'd be dying in a, in a barroom brawl. Uh, he just was such damaged goods from the get-go, Miranda, that no matter how he tried to better himself, get right, you know, he did. He just was damaged. He couldn't make it. And, and Flynn said to me, in the end, you could see it coming. He said, I didn't know it was going to end like that, but you could see something bad was coming. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't, I'm certainly not sympathetic to what he did. I mean, the guy was a criminal. But he was also a human being who wanted to. He was. He wanted to uh, raise his daughter, mm-hmm. and that became a, a point of contention. Just it was a difficult story all around. And like many great stories, there are a lot of interesting ironies throughout Flynn and Miranda. Uh, one of which is, yes, to a degree, the decision becoming known as the Miranda decision, it fulfilled a need on Miranda's part to be remembered. And yet, right. as you discuss in the book, it's almost a fluke that it became known as Miranda. Well, if you think about it, M, the letter M is the 13th letter in the alphabet. Mm-hmm. And the only reason it's the Miranda decision is because the companion cases, there were three other companion cases, Stewart, Vinyara, and Westover, all started with uh, letters further down the alphabet. If it had been, uh, you know, the Acme uh, case or the Charleston case or the Frank case or the Joe case, it wouldn't have been Miranda. So it was just serendipity and that this guy should be plucked from obscurity and just by happenstance become a household word. And he thought, Miranda, that that would bring him celebrity and success for example, when he went back to prison, he was a model prisoner, mm-hmm. which is why he got out earlier than he should have, probably, because he thought, finally, I've been given this chance in life, and it just wasn't to be. People didn't really care about him. They cared about the decision. And ultimately, he just was such damaged fighting, and it just it ended the way it ended. Flynn and Miranda, Your Right to Remain Silent, available right now, Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. We have at least two people in common besides Charlie Barrett. One is Philip Saltzman. Oh, I've stumped the guest. That's never good. According to your IMDb, you wrote or produced uh, for Jake and the Fat Man. I think Phil was the producer on that show at that time. That's not a name that I associate with the show. Okay. I did Jake and the Fat Man when it went to Hawaii. It was Dean... Oh, Dean Hargrove? Yes, Dean Hargrove. Okay, then we have we still have two people in common because I know Dean has been a guest on our program and Dean was very helpful to me when I wrote my book on Perry Mason. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, Dean was quite a good guy. Yeah, and the other person that we have in common, I think, is Marjorie Nelson. Oh, yeah. All right, yeah. Yeah. The story lady. Yes, the story lady. I I will confess, I have not talked to Marjorie in a while, but I've thought of her since Bill passed a couple of months ago. But I thought it was cool that you and her worked together, and you either won an award or were nominated for an award together. That was the story lady. What I remember about the story lady was, first of all, Jessica Tandy was incredible. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a story about her, man. What a pro. Yeah. She actually worked 12 hours one day with an abscessed tooth. 
And at 6 o'clock in the night when the pain got overwhelming, she said, Joe, darling, would you know of a dentist? <laughs> and I said, sure, what do you need? Either something, you do something over the weekend. She goes, no, I've been working for 12 hours and my two, I can't stand the pain. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. And I called my dentist, and of course, this is Hollywood. I said, would you come in at 9 o'clock tonight to work on Jessica Dancy? <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> you know, if it had been me, I would have had to wait till Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, but as you say, uh, but, that... That's that's a pro. She blocked all that out in order to do what uh, she needed to do when the lights were on. That's right. That's right. She was fabulous. And we got her right after she won for uh, Driving Miss Daisy. Mm-hmm. I never thought. I thought when, when Mike Feilman said, I'm putting out an offer to uh, Jessica Tandy, I thought he's crazy. I said, she just, and when we finally got to talk to her, she said, uh, uh, I'm very flattered that you asked. There aren't that many roles for women my age. Yeah, she did it. I never thought she was going to say yes. <laughs> Driving Miss Daisy, she won an Academy Award or was nominated for an Academy Award. She's going to do our TV movie. Well, yeah, she did. Well, what I've what I've yeah. learned what I've learned is that some actors they look for good roles wherever the right. whatever the medium is, whether it's stage, whether it's television, or whether it's movies. And it sounds you're like absolutely she, correct. Yeah. In my career, I've been fortunate to work with Helen Hayes, Mildred Network, Ann Baxter, uh, Jessica Tandy, Julie Harris. I love Julie Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, just some of the best, most professional, talented female actresses ever produced. And probably your listening audience, unless they're our age, probably never heard of anybody except Jessica well, our our list, my core listening audience is forty five and up. So you checked a lot of boxes in the in the last couple of seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I probably. Do. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Go ahead. This I, I this probably, this is the oh, Joe this is the Joe show. So I I have to, I have to stay out of the way and let the guests talk. <laughs> no, no. You ask great questions because if you don't, I'm like a horse that needs blinkers. I'll <laughs> ramble all over the landscape. <laughs> Joe. Of course, you mentioned uh, Michael uh, Feilerman. Now, of course, you and he not only worked on the story, lady, but but you both have Knott's Landing in common. Yes, Michael, may he rest in peace, was a fabulous development executive and a good producer. And thank God I met Michael, and he supported me because because of Michael, I got to work in Europe and Canada. But he was a trip, Michael. I'll tell you a story. I won't mention names, but we once pitched a project at the network, and the network very sort of dismissively. It was a story about a sort of like hotel, but it took place in the world's largest indoor mall, Mm -hmm. right? And the executive, who was so full of himself, said to Philemon, how am I supposed to tell my mother I'm doing a series in the mall? And Mike, without missing a beat, said to him, how do you tell your mother the other crap you guys make? (laughs) (laughs) And I remember thinking, well, there goes that job, but what the heck? At least we didn't have to take that condescending nonsense. So Michael was a trip, and uh, I had a lot of fun with him, and we went a lot of places. I understand that, uh, and you correct me if I got this wrong, I understand he had he had a lot of theater in his background, and that was one of the reasons that, that attracted a lot of the like people such as Julie Harris, who had theater background, to do a show like yes. Knott's and... That helped create the great environment that Knott's had behind the scenes. That's correct. That's correct. Plus the fact, uh, for an actor, Michael was a dream because he really loved actors. And David, 
was the easiest guy to work with on the planet. He had a great sense of humor. He was approachable. David Jacobs, yeah. The cast loved him. Uh, and so it was a very happy experience all around. And I believe that when everybody is happy, it shows up on the screen in the performances and the fluidity of the show. And I just believe it all goes into contributing. Michael, but yeah, he did have a theater background. What was interesting, I'll tell you a quick story about that. Julie Harris was the number one off-Broadway draw mm -hmm. in America, right? Mm -hmm. But this is Hollywood. And in Hollywood, there are method actors, there are TV actors, there are some people who get to their performance quickly, and some that don't. Well, I had the dubious uh, challenge. Julie would get her best performance on the first take, because her training was, you didn't get take seven. Mm -hmm. But the other actress, whose name I shall not mention, couldn't get to her performance until take 12. So I used to have to rehearse with a stand-in 10 times before I could even bring Julie onto the set. Which sounds like, well, that's just some of the idiosyncrasies of the uh, film business. Unless it's 10 to 12 on midnight yeah. on a Friday and the entire group is ready to go into platinum time. <laughs> it's known as stress. And it's also, and this, this is one of the things a producer has to do, it's not only recognizing the strengths and the quirks of your talent, but making sure that you use... Julie Harris when she is at her best and not waste Julie Harris when she's at her best. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I say this to the kids at school. Filmmaking is not hard. People are hard. And what I mean by that, I don't mean difficult. I mean no two are alike. And Julie and this other actress, in my mind, are the perfect example. Two real pros, really good at their craft, talented but their styles of working were so different. And when that's two people, when you have a cast and a crew that goes into 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, there's a lot of creation of symbiosis. I don't know, that seems probably like an obscure reference. I mean, you gotta get a lot of people working on the same page with the same energy, yeah. same focus. There, there's that a... actually is one of the primary functions of a producer. It's not just pleasing the network or the production entity. It's not just the money. It's not just the act. It's creating the environment where everybody can do their best work. Yeah. And yeah. That's not so easy to codify, but I mean, that is a function of producing. It is. It is. In that respect, it is very so similar to what a major league manager does with the baseball Absolutely. team. Absolutely. It's, right. it, it's recognizing the various skill sets and experience of your team, of your crew, and putting every, everybody in a position where they can succeed or perform as best they can. Absolutely. And the reverse of that is you can, with all good intention, do damage uh, to somebody who can't do it. I had a very, very sweet, talented cinematographer, uh, but he was slow as molasses. <laughs> Stuff was beautiful. Yeah. But it was, watching him work was like watching wallpaper dry. And the production entity was getting on my case. You got to go fast. You got to go fast. Gotta... So I went to him and I said, listen, I love your work and I love you. But is there any chance we could like, you know, just what's up the, a little bit, 10%? You, he says, but you got it, Joe. I'm going to do it. And he tried. I watched the poor guy try. And his work suffered. He just wasn't the same guy. Yeah. So uh, I went back to the company and I said, look. We're going to have to, we're paying the guy, we're halfway through the show, we're going to have to let him work his way, and I'll have to find the money someplace else. And that's what we did. So, yeah, you got to be not only a producer, you got to be a psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs>
Joe alluded to the fact that uh, he oversees and administers uh, all aspects of filming for the uh, many students who make films every year at the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts. I want you back on our program. We'll talk about how you got involved in USC, and uh, maybe you'll share a few more stories about your, your movie and TV career. Anytime, Ed. You're a delight. Thank you for having me. Joseph Wallenstein is the author of Flynn and Miranda, Your Right to Remain Silent. Flynn and Miranda, Your Right to Remain Silent. Available Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. We'll be back with more TV Confidential right after this. Become a TV Confidential confidant and receive unlimited access to the last five years of TV Confidential, plus other members-only content. For more information, go to televisionconfidential.com slash join. One more item. If you love Ella Fitzgerald, our friend Jeffrey Mark celebrates the music of the First Lady of Song every week on Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella. You can hear Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella on Megaphone and wherever else you find podcasts. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk tvconfidential.net talk at tvconfidential.net you can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential x.com forward slash tvconfidential or at tvconfidential on instagram and if you're listening to us on the tv confidential podcast please be sure to hit the subscribe button This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.